0: And open up to Romans 15, that's where we'll be this morning. You know, there's a great theme of the whole Bible, and that is the glory of God. And most of us don't see that at first. We don't start off reading the Bible looking for the glory of God, that's because we all have sort of the remnants of kindergartners in us, and we tend to view things through our own lens and see it through our experience and our eyes. If you take the Bible and you read it cover to cover through this sort of childish, me-centered way, you arrive at a very different message than if you're looking for the glory of God. This week in the text, what we're going to see is sort of this classic fork in the road where it leads to two very different destinations depending on how we read the message. In a nutshell, Romans 15 is saying this, to love sincerely welcome well. And then if you look at Romans 15, verses 6 to 7, these are the last two verses we're getting to. It says this, that together with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Number seven says this, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you, watch this, for the glory of God. So where we're going this morning is the glory of God. The last two verses say it two different ways and in two different times. And I want to say this up front. I hope that our church is known as a friendly, welcoming church. But I pray that our welcoming is not an end in itself. I pray that being known as a welcoming, friendly church is to the glory of God. I could preach a sermon this morning on improving relationships and our welcoming skills so that you'll be more informed and more encouraged and that will actually spill out into your family relationships, into your business relationships, into being a coach, into being a better teacher, whatever your profession might be. I could preach a sermon challenging us to be friendly, to be friendly so that we can enjoy the benefits of a group of people getting along. That's that's a good thing. I could preach a sermon so that we'll feel better about ourselves as we grow in just sharing kindness and and giving, you know, giving our love to other people. The problem is, all of that would sour very quickly. The truth of the matter is that if we walk the trail that God has for us, all three of those things actually may come true. Those, like, sort of might come spilling out of of what it means to welcome well, but that sort of man-centered life sours. When Jesus said this, he says, if you want to keep your life, do what with it? Give it away. He was talking about something deeper and more profound than building a better network for your business by being more friendly. We read the Bible to our own peril if we read it in a self-centered way. And we live life to our own peril if we live our life in a man-centered way. Would you pray with me? God, would you help us as a church be about your glory? God, I pray that you would work that in us. As we just sang, God, help us to see the hope that Calvary provides. God, I pray that this would be a place that when we meet together, that when we meet in our homes, God, that we would be intentional, that you would fill us with love for people for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I thought I would help churches around the city and nation by sort of thinking through some strategies for thinning out overcrowded churches. We've all experienced just the frustration of not getting a close parking spot and all kinds of different things. So just a, just a couple things, if you want to jot these down, these might be helpful for you to remember. Uh, but one is to have unfriendly church members. And what you want to do with that is you want to really balance people who are just intentional about giving a cold shoulder uh, but also get some people in there who are really, really fake and just give big fake smiles and big fake hugs and handshakes, but they do it in a way that kind of turns people off. Um, a second strategy would be to have unsafe and unclean children's area. Uh, if your church is overcrowded, it's really important to let visitors know, um, we want to make this as confusing as possible for you to check your children in uh, so that you won't come back. Uh, Here's a third thing. A third thing is to make sure that your website is full of uh, insider lingo and acronyms. These acronyms don't have to mean anything. They just communicate. You don't know the acronym, and so you're not really all that welcome here. Churches do a good job of that. Um... Number four is to create bad or boring church services. Uh, in your staff meetings, strive for mediocrity. Uh, let the words good enough, like really ring over and over throughout the week. And finally, train members to absolutely make sure that they let people know if anyone's ever sitting in their seat. Uh, come up and, and be brusque about it. You know, be a little bit harsh about it, but, but let them know. Even if you let them stay in their seat, just let them, let them know that. Um, now you may have uh, you may have experienced some of this. You see, this takes a lot of training. This takes intentionality, right? This this really takes something to kind of get churches to this place. Uh, this morning we're talking about welcoming well, and I want to say this in all sincerity. Now, if you don't know me, that was tongue in cheek. Some of you are like, "Wow, this is a cutting edge church." Um, <laughs> I want to say welcome to everyone here this morning, and uh, and in particular, if you're a visitor, let me say this. As I prayed over and thought about this passage and just sort of sort of where we are as a church, um, you know, regularly we say this to visitors. We say welcome, and we want to get to know you, and we're here to serve you, um, but, but I want to tweak it because in reality, um, we are thrilled that you're here. We do want to get to know you, but actually we don't really we can't even serve you well we don't know you well and and the and the, the truest thing i could tell you if you're a visitor here this morning is this i'm actually calling you to serve so if you're a visitor here and you stick around long enough you are going to be invited into this great mission of welcoming others into the family of god so there are prodigals who are spiritually beat up and uh, suffering the consequences of their own rebellious choices, we exist as a church to welcome prodigals back in. There are people who are absolutely freezing cold, and even in, either in their own mind or because of the experiences I just laid out of strategies for thinning out overcrowded churches, they don't sense the warmth of God's love. And we are calling you, visitor, we're calling you, member, to welcome people in and warm them up with God's love. We're calling you to actually welcome in like a newborn baby or a newly fostered or adopted child into a family to really welcome well that new little infant, that new little young child that won't produce for the household for a long time. They will start at the natural starting point of reading the scriptures, which is all about me. And in time, we will prayerfully see them go from uh, I want to I will. I will do the things Scripture's calling me to. I will do the the life that God's calling me to live. And in the meantime, we are going to bear patiently with those inconsistencies and childlike ways. You know, we made it to Romans 15. uh, And this morning, uh, we're going to kind of look at uh, the third part in this trilogy. It's a trilogy just because I broke it up into three parts, but it's a trilogy on Paul talking about the strong and the weak. Okay, so track with me here for a second. If you've missed either of these two weeks, I want to just kind of get our head in the right spot so that we read the scriptures in an accurate way. Romans 14 and 15. While there may be principles that apply to evangelism, to being great neighbors outside the church, it is directed to those who are already in the family. So this is speaking Christian to Christian, how we are to welcome one another, how we're to bear with one another, how we are to love one another. When he's talking about the strong here, the strong are those who understand the gospel and their freedom that they have in the gospel. Here's what the strong from Romans 14 that we already saw have to guard against. They have to guard against brashness. They have to guard against superiority. They have to guard against being overly opinionated. The weak here are those who have lost sight of the gospel truth and they are bound by past religious regulations. They feel constrained by these different rules that they have to keep. Here's what the weak have to guard against. They have to guard against living fearfully. They have to guard against being constrained as rule followers who judge others who don't follow the rules quite as well. They aren't free in the grace that God has given them. So when it says strong and weak, we have to get our heads around what is actually being talked about. Here are some truths that I want to just sort of start with, and that is this. Whether you are strong or weak this morning, there are some things that are true of every child of God. And I hope you take this as a nugget and reflect on it this week. I hope this sort of lifts your spirit. Number one is this. Just from these two chapters, you've been welcomed by God. If you're weak and you're constrained by all your religious upbringing and you have all these rules constantly telling you you're not really in God's grace unless you show up at church every week five minutes early, you've been welcomed by God. Secondly, you belong to Jesus. I'm strong in my Christian freedom. I'm weak in that. You've been welcomed by Jesus, friend. Number three, you're ransomed by the blood of Jesus. There's some great truths for everyone in the family of God. The moment at your conversion, these things are true of you. And finally, you are the work of God. If you're writing, keep writing. But if you're not writing, look at the screen for a second. Look at the screen and let those play over in your mind. The enemy will come to seek, to steal, and to kill and to destroy. And these are some of the points he's going to attack, isn't he? You aren't loved by God. You aren't God's work. You're still enslaved. You have to do this. You aren't ransomed. Remember, as we read the Bible, that chapter divisions aren't inspired. So the, the division between reading from chapter 14 on into 15, that's artificial. That's, that's man-made. Someone put that in there to kind of give an address right? Think our school systems and sort of where they draw district lines for what school you go to. Sometimes it's kind of wonky. You just go, that was weird. I would have drawn it a little bit differently. If you look at Romans 14 to 15, here's what's kind of curious. If you take 14.1 and you sort of carry the strong and weak argument through, it ends more logically either at 15.7, which is where we're going to go up through today, or maybe 15.13. So this same argument of strong and weak, strong and weak, strong and weak is being carried through. So part one in the first part of Romans is this, don't welcome only to argue, don't judge and and, and do form and live out your convictions. That was part one. We already covered that. That was in Romans 14. Here's what part two was all about. It was disputable matters and about not becoming a choking hazard to your brother or sister. Use your freedom to build up rather than use your freedom to beat up, right? And that's what churches are so known for. Just arguing and nitpicking and, and, and fighting over these things. And the whole idea of doing the hard work of prioritizing. And this isn't for your pastors, or your elders, or your small group leader to do. This is for you to do, Christian. This part of growing up. You do the hard work of prioritizing. Here was one suggestion from the text. Walk in love over being right. You know, just just take these things and say, what's most important here? Temporal matters or spiritual matters? Eternal matters. And finally, the command from last week, two weeks ago, because we had Easter, was keep it to yourself. Form these convictions and then keep that between you and the Lord. Unless grace calls you to speak it out. Here's part three. Part three is to welcome well to the glory of God. If you aren't there already, Romans 15 is where we are. And I'm going to read the first seven verses. It says this. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, we live in America, and not more of an American saying than this, right? That God helps those who help themselves. I mean, that's just the rugged individualism. We go, yeah, America, on that one. We like that. Um, Here's what the gospel does. The gospel sort of pops the ego, and it says this, God helps those who cannot help themselves, right? And this is what, this is what the pride in all of us had such a hard time paying the price to get low and become like children. So we don't need the gospel. Jesus comes along, and he says something to this effect. He says that God helps those who help others as they help themselves. So once the gospel takes root in us, it actually prompts us outward to say, God, you've created in me a desire to help other people. And you know what God does? God gets on board with that because that's from the Lord. You're his workmanship created to do good works. So as you turn outward and you start wanting to help people, God comes and helps you as you help other people. In 2015, uh, for about a month, we unofficially changed the name of our church to Neighbor Pleasing Bible Church. We took about four weeks on this, and we just, uh, we just taught through some passages. And this was one of the passages that we looked at. And if you look at Neighbor Pleasing Bible Church, the word Bible is the qualifier to our pleasing. So it looks something like this. We are going to strive to please our neighbor in every way the Bible allows us to please our neighbor. And where the Bible doesn't allow us to please our neighbor, then we then we don't do it. So if our neighbors say, hey, I'm really, really into stuff, can you steal things for me? We go, we're into pleasing our neighbors, but the Bible doesn't allow us to steal stuff for you, right? So, so we, we talked through this. People-pleasing is seen as a negative, right? Don't be a people-pleaser. We're taught that. Why is that? Well, it's because usually it's talking about the lack of the strength to be truthful, right? So I'm pleasing others. I'm bending my will to sort of please people around me in hopes that I will get something from them. I want affirmation. I want no confrontation. I want something, right? So I'm a people-pleaser. I want to show you from the text that actually people-pleasing is the essence of service. Biblical people-pleasing. Because it's strength that you possess that is placed at the disposal of another person. That it's giving something of yourself and saying, I'm going to please you in favor of pleasing me. I think we can redeem the concept of people-pleasing. Not talking about, again, sort of all the negative side of it that maybe we grew up with. The Bible is there for our instruction. Uh, when, it, when it talks about um, just uh, here in verse, um, where is it? Verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I am not going to touch much on this verse at all. Let me commend a book to you that I've been about halfway through, maybe a little bit beyond. But it's called A Peculiar Glory by John Piper. Um, and it's a it's a it's a book trying to show you the glories of what we hold in our hand, known as the Old and New Testament. If you are lacking confidence in In whether this is God's word or not, or even if you're not, I didn't read the book because I was lacking confidence in that. I am finding the glories of what God did, the miracle of what we hold in our hands, the affirmation that Jesus put on the Old Testament as being authoritative, as being concluded, as being final. Uh, these things are written. That's why we open our Bible every week. That's why we teach through the Bible. We believe it has something to say today, that it's authoritative for us today. Verse 7 says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. I want you to think for just a moment, the last time that you were welcomed really, really well, Just the body language of the person, the tone, the words they use, what they chose not to say, sort of the environment. Like, when was the last time you just thought, man, that was an amazing welcome? You actually found yourself thinking back on it because it was so powerfully done. Now, I want you to think about another time, maybe recently, when you weren't welcomed well. In fact, you felt rejected. You did not feel received at all. What did that stir up in you? What were, the, what were the factors that made it like, wow, that was really challenging? One of your questions in community group is to solve the age-old riddle, which is this. If none of us practice awkwardness, why are we so good at it? Like no one sets out to go to a class of how to be more awkward. I've never seen a book on that. And yet it's just everywhere, right? Right? So when was the last time you were rejected? You weren't received. Maybe the person thought they were doing things to be welcoming, but it didn't feel that way. I want to walk through sort of the the who and how and why of welcoming that we see from this text. Number one is this. If you're taking notes, you can jot this down. Who are we to welcome? We're to welcome one another. Again, this is talking internally to the family. There will be principles that will spill out, but this is talking Christian to Christian. If you look at the title slide, And this whole concept of making yourself at home. Our third service friends might say, mi casa, su casa, right? So it's just this idea of of friendship and welcoming in well. There's There's a kitchen on the left and there's a kitchen on the right. Now, don't answer out loud, but which one looks more inviting to you? Which one looks more welcoming to you? Uh, the, the truth is that the answer to that is somewhat subjective, right? Some of you immediately would say some things and have some factors, but it's sort of a trick question. Here's why it's a trick question. I would venture to guess that, in fact, more than being able to look at a picture, you would have to go into the experience itself, and you would have to see which one is more welcoming. Because it's true that temperature and color and decor and room layout all have an impact on how you feel in terms of being received or not. But ultimately, isn't it about the people? Isn't it about the conversation that you've had there? I mean, you could take either one of these and go, wow, it was not about my first impression as I walked in. It was something completely different. The picture on the right is is a picture I took. It's it's um, It's a kitchen of a childhood friend of Sandra Ayon, so Angel's wife. Ethan and I got to go to Bogota this summer with Angel and Sandra and Isabella. It was awesome. And we were there, and she, we, were, we were at a different part of, uh, of Colombia, and we were driving back, and uh, she said, hey, we're going to stop by. And this home um, was sort of an architectural beauty. I mean, like, just, I, I went around and took, I said, do you mind if I just take pictures of your house? Because it looks really amazing. And there were these exposed beams and thoughtful touches all over the house. And it literally looked like something out of Architectural Digest. It was very, very homey. And it had nothing to do with all the pictures that I took. It had nothing to do with all these touches. That was a part of it. That stood out to me as like, wow, this is a really, really nice home. But obviously, what I'm talking about was the people. It was the people in conversation. This is Jorge. um, And Jorge is making coffee on the stove for me. So he immediately is one of my close friends. I just immediately like this man a lot. Beyond that, he made arroz con leche and had cinnamon and raisins. And we had this little, like, you know, Colombian dessert that was really phenomenal, amazing. And we sat around the table and had conversation and sat. And it was just a very welcoming, warm experience. The kitchen on the right in our picture uh, looks a lot more like my kitchen on an average day. <laughs> Uh, cupboards are open and there's stuff on the counter and there's always some cycle of dishes being done or not done. And when I look at that picture, that's not our actual kitchen. But when I look at that picture, you know what? If that's my kitchen, that's homey. I mean, there's no better place to be than in my kitchen. I really like being there because because the people that are there, because of the family that I have there, right? So when I look at this, here's the answer to me. When I look at this, which one makes you feel right at home? Both did. Both made me feel completely at home. And it had very little to do with sort of the externals, with sort of the cleanliness or or, or sort of, you know, buttoned-up tidiness of the things going on. Hospitality is so important that it's a spiritual gift. If you look at all the spiritual gifts, here's what you see. Every Christian is called to a life of love. Every Christian is called to a life of service without fail. Every Christian here is called to be hospitable. But there are some people God supernaturally bestows on this this gift that just goes, man, You're just gifted at that. God has wired you and used your life experiences, and you just ooze hospitality. I love that we have many in this church. I've experienced your hospitality in your home as I've been invited into that. This whole title that we're talking about carries with it the idea of being right at home, making people feel welcome. But it has a double meaning. The double meaning is this, start here, start at home. So because this is talking about the church and not your your nuclear family, rather I'm saying, church, start getting this right at home. This is where we start. Your community group, you meeting on a Sunday morning, you meeting for a Bible study, you going for a walk with a fellow Christian and, and engaging with each other, that's a greenhouse for growth. We are to be growing up in this in an incredible way. There's actually great damage that can go on if you love first and most all of those outside the church and you're just cold shoulder and you don't develop any relationships inside. Because what you're doing is you're inviting people far from God. They're coming in. They're taking a look at how we treat spiritual siblings. And they go, oh, okay, this is a reflection on the father. And it's not a reflection on the father. So church, get this right. Before we welcome people in, get this right. Be working on this. This is important. When I sort of think about what's the best that man can come up with, here's what we hear a lot about. We hear a lot about tolerance and coexistence. I mean, that's sort of the highest standard that we can get our heads around without God. Coexist. Tolerate one another. I don't want to step on toes here, but you ever lived with someone, a spouse, a parent, A child that just tolerates your existence? That the highest they can think about is, let's just try to coexist. Let's try not to kill each other. Man, there's probably no more stabbing wound than that. Because it should be so much different. You know what God calls us to? God calls us to move way beyond tolerance and coexistence to sympathy and service. Look what this passage says. It says, bear with. The failings of the weak. Please your neighbor in favor of yourself. We've looked at this Greek word proslambano. And it means to receive, to take hold of, to bring along, to lead alongside. To grant someone access to your heart. Kirk and Audrey talked about the cost. I tell you, there's nothing more risky than offering yourself in love to another person. Any of you who have parents know that little kid is walking around and someday they're going to leave home. They've got part of you walking around with them. They do things, say things, they will make your heart delight. They do things and say things, they will crush your spirit. As Christ has proslambano, welcome you into his family, here's what we do, spiritual siblings. You, proslumbano, you welcome others. That's the picture. So how did Christ welcome, or how are we to welcome, I should say? It's, it's like Jesus. I want you to just kind of do a big sigh here for a moment um, and be really glad that we don't just muster this up. Be really glad that, uh, that, that you don't just have to sort of stir this up. This flows from what has already been done for you. As we look to the scriptures for an example and continue to experience his ongoing example in our lives, we simply mimic what we are experiencing. That's why I wanted to start with just some of your positioning, weak and strong Christian. Hey, these things are true of you. Reflect on that, think on that, sing about it, meditate on that, walk in those truths. The basis for this command is as Christ welcomed you. What did he do? He accepted you. So when you accept brothers and sisters in Christ that you don't in the flesh get along with, you know what you're doing? You're putting your theology into practice. You're taking what you know to be true and you're living it out. So we're called to welcome the welcomed. Do you see how destructive this is in a Christian community when God has welcomed someone home and then those of us who are here in the church, don't welcome the very ones God's welcomed? Go read the story of the prodigal son and focus on the older brother. Right? The older brother is the one who says, I can't, I can't welcome that one. I know dad's welcomed him back, but I'm not ready to forgive yet. That's the picture of Christians who are unwelcoming to other Christians. So how does Christ welcome us? When I read the Gospels, I see every word, every act was for other people he's our model he lived to please his neighbor not himself he lived to serve his neighbor not himself it's the strong building up the weak he's not flaunting powerful faith but he's getting low and supporting in kindness the faith of others jesus welcomed people truthfully and you know what the truth sometimes makes us feel unworthy and what does it cause us to do? It causes us to want to run away. Sometimes people are truthful and you just go, man, that's, that's too much in the light. I want to stay in the dark. That doesn't feel very good. But not only did he welcome truthfully, he welcomed graciously. So I don't know of a, of a more confusing person than Jesus in some ways. I mean, you're just drawn to him. You go, wow, he just, he just answers so truthfully that, that I, I, I don't know if I want to get too close. I don't, I've seen other people ask him questions and he exposes their heart. I'm going to keep my mouth shut and just kind of watch this one from the sidelines. But there's a grace to him that just draws us. Wouldn't it be powerful? I mean, this is the truth. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. So we can walk in, in truth. We can walk in grace. And we don't have to pick and choose. We say, God, help make both of those things true in our lives of how we welcome Let me look at the why, which I already touched on because I thought it was so important. Worship takes many forms it's music and giving and prayer and befriending, but it's also be neighboring. So, why do we welcome well? We welcome well to worship for the glory of God. What is the result of Christ's acceptance of us? Praise. We want to call out in the assembly, we want to say how great God is. We want to talk about what he's done and the results of our acceptance of one another is that god shines listen to john 13 this is from eugene peterson's the message and he says this let me give you a new commandment love one another in the same way i loved you you love one another so there's the example part now watch for the praise part This is how everyone will recognize that you are my disciples when they see the love you have for each other. So we have the example of Christ and the result of us loving one another, the result of us walking the path God's laid out for us, is God will be praised. God will be glorified. Again, I hope we're known as a welcoming church, but I don't want that to be in in itself. We fail if we get to the end and we say, weren't we the friendliest? I'll tell you how we succeed is if people walk in and they go, these people are way too friendly and loving and self-sacrificing for it to be just them. The more I've gotten to know them, they're pretty regular people. There must be something supernatural at work here. Let me look elsewhere to see where this is coming from. What's the source of this patience that these people have with one another? What's the source of the giving and the self-sacrifice and the willing cause that they will lay down their rights for the sake of another? I have to find the source, and they turn their attention to God. You know, we have an interesting thing, grew up in the church, so I heard this a lot. This interesting sort of metric where people will say, oh, she's so godly. Oh, that, per- that guy over there, such a man of God. And here's often what we're talking about. Oftentimes, what's being referred to, if you dig down say, what does that mean? What do you mean she's so God? When you say that, why are you saying that? Here's often what it means. She has a vast knowledge of the scriptures and theology. He is so bold in witnessing. She is so faithful in prayer. He is so holy. She is such a generous giver. He has such a huge ministry. Think about it for a second in your own experience. How often does it mean... And, and and has it ever come on the radar that Christian maturity measures the depth of love that we have for one another? That the quality of relationships, the quality of that person's relationships within the church first and foremost, but spilling out into every circle. We just look at that and go, That person is so godly. They don't really know the scriptures that well. They're struggling, they're learning, they're growing but they're so godly and she is so godly and what they mean by that is that is that she just has taken jesus's command to to love one another to his glory as her highest goal in life and you know what she struggles with witnessing she's not that outspoken she struggles with being faithful in other areas she's she's not a prayer warrior She never grew a big ministry. No one even really knows about it. But when you get up close to her, you go, wow, that person really loves well. If you want to see that your love for God is most clearly measured by your love for other people, here's my invitation to you. Go read 1 John tonight. Go just take this short little epistle and read 1 John And let this either get back on your radar as a measuring stick for what am I supposed to be growing up in or put it on there for the first time. I want to quickly go over some hurdles to obeying this. We're to love our neighbors as ourself, and some form of this, you know, do unto others as you would have do unto you. It's the golden rule. And if you study every major world religion, it has some form of this, which to me just says we're all image bearers of God. We know this to be true. But our problem has never been knowing the golden rule. The problem is keeping the golden rule, right? Anyone anyone with me on that? Not hard to memorize it. We get the golden rule. It's hard to do it. And then people talk about a moral compass. Well, a moral compass is just depressing. All a moral compass does is keep saying, you're going in the wrong direction. You're off again. You keep messing up. That's what a moral compass does. I don't need a moral compass. I need a savior. Right? I need someone to come, come in and say, Let me rescue you out of your selfishness. Let me rescue you out of all you know you should be doing and aren't doing. It's the sin of omission. And all the things you're doing that you know you shouldn't be doing, those sins you're committing, let me rescue you out of that. Church, Christ saves. He came to shatter these man-made barriers that we put up between ourselves and relationship. He heals and restores the way that we view ourselves. He heals and restores the way that we view other people. Again, today is not a call to muster up love, mercy, forgiveness, or even a great big smile and a super good handshake. I don't care about any of that. Today is a call instead to remember and tap into the love you already have experienced from Christ. If you've been forgiven much, you're going you're gonna to love well. You're going to forgive other people. If you are walking in the love of Christ, that will spill out into others. That said, let me give you a couple of practical helps to obey command, uh, God's command to love. Uh, these are three hurdles that I shared actually back in 2015. I'm just going to walk through them again quickly. One is relational sloppiness. Here's what relational sloppiness is. You already know the right thing to do. You just aren't doing it. Someone said once this, that home is where you go when you're done being nice to people. If you save your worst for the home, uh, that's relational sloppiness. You already know that if uh, that if you take for granted the people around you, um, that, that that you lose sloppiness in sports. If you're a football player and you keep fumbling and jumping off sides, you'll lose every time. You just that's sloppy. You know not to do that. You've got to keep the ball and you've got to keep from jumping off sides. So get help, practice. Don't keep fumbling. In your relationships. Don't keep jumping off sides and going, well, you know, that's just me. Here's the second one. Second one is relational clumsiness. Relational clumsiness is this. Unexplained weakness at inappropriate times. Like you, you just have the dropsies. They're accidents, yes, but they're also really, really painful. Um, here's what I'm talking about. Maybe someone trusted you and sort of let you into a hurt, into a part of your life, and, and they just needed a companion in there. And once you got in there, man, you were just a bull in a china shop. You just trampled all over that person's heart and story and life. And, and you know, again, it was, it was just clumsiness. And you got in there and, and realized, wow, I just broke a bunch of stuff. I think I did worse damage than before. It's when you answer the deep needs or updates that people give to you with cliche answers, and just kind of you know casting it off as a as a as a simple thing. These are these are uh, relational clumsiness experiences. Think about what happens after an accident. If you watch one of your children um, spill something, you know, and it shatters the glass and it spills liquid all over the place. I, this is just hypothetical. I've never seen this in my home before. Um, usually there's advice that goes along with that, right? And, and in your best days as a parent, you bear with the, the failings of the week, but you might offer, you know what? I know it was an accident, so that's okay. We'll clean it up, but slow down. We'll clean it up, but kind of move that away from the edge. If that's near the edge, that's going to get bumped again, isn't it? Yep, it is. Okay, good. So it's a learning opportunity. What about in our relationships that we actually learn from the past and we go, man, wh- why did that end so terribly? Why is that person just keep me at arm's distance now? I kind of don't blame them, but, but, but you know, I'm, I'm, I, I want to make things better. Here's a third one. A third one is relational ignorance. Sometimes you just absolutely have no idea what's happening in the moment, um, and, and, uh, and you're, you're just absolutely clueless. Let me say this. There's a misnomer, I think, that there's, there's people people and there's non-people people. Here's the truth. If you're a person, you're a people person. Ben already said this. We're created for community. Some of you are more naturally gifted. Some of you more naturally want to move in relationship towards people. Some of you are more naturally intuitive and have a higher relational IQ than other people. But catch this. You can grow and learn at this. Many of you had children and husband or wife was naturally gifted at children. They just got a baby. They just started doing stuff. It looked like, you know, fish and water. Like they just did it. And others of you just had no clue what to do with the baby. What do you do when you have no clue? You educate yourself. After a very short period of time, because you're motivated to do well and do right by this child, you know all about jaundice and colic and how to calm a baby and how to burp a baby and how to change a baby and what to do with babies and how to buckle babies in and unbuckle babies and how to talk to babies. You know all kinds of stuff about babies. Why? Because you grew. You cared to learn. You cared to to do this. If you are not aware of just even your own inner self, go read the Psalms. The Psalms has a lot of self-talk. The Psalms has a lot of paying attention to your inner life and what's going on. Asking the question, God, I'm not sure why I'm in turmoil over this. I don't even know why. Would you help me see that? God, I don't know why this delights me so much. Can you make sure that's from you? And just to begin to nurture the inner life. And sometimes uh, people just look over that because they, they have not been given that growing up. But I can promise you this, that if you ignore your inner life, it will keep you from growing in your relationships with other people. These are killers to relationships. Fear, insecurity, jealousy, pride. Man, these are all lurking in our soul. God, try me and know myself. See if there be any wicked way in me. Would you help me nurture out of that? We're headed to chapter 16 in just a few weeks. Just look at how important personal greeting is. You're God, and you think I have a limited number of chapters in the Bible. The chapters are man-made, don't forget. And I'm going to keep it for all of time. I'm going to take almost a whole chapter in the book of Romans and fill it with personal greeting. Friends, us welcoming well is not second rate. This is not a cast off afterthought. This is the family life God has called us to. Let me invite the band to come on up right now. I warn you that if you step into this, your welcome mat will not only get dirty, it'll get thrashed. It'll just get destroyed as you welcome people in well. One of the things we did in 2015 is we instilled a not quite mandatory use of name tags. Think about the power of a simple name tag. Um, first of all, if you ever wear a name tag, by the way, the band is doing a great example of this. They just, they nailed it. Good job, Band. <laughs> bad job preacher. If you wear a name tag, think about this. It is the ultimate in others focus. No one wears a name tag for themselves. What's your name? Hang on. There's my cheat sheet. It's Dave. You wear it for other people. It's a gift to other people. Isn't this true? You walk up to someone that you've seen before at church and you go, I really should know that guy's name. I think it's James, but it might be Jimmy or he might go by Frank. I can't remember. And so I'll avoid that person. And so it actually keeps us from engaging because we go. I, I actually am at a point in our relationship. I should know their name. I prayed with that person two weeks ago over the hurt of their of their dying mother, and now I can't remember their name, and I feel bad. So I'm gonna I'm gonna keep my distance. Something as simple as a name tag is a way of welcoming. Well, here's the other thing: if all the church members wear name tags regularly, if you're a brand new visitor, you don't feel awkward. You don't feel the, the newbie of going. Oh, you're, you're the name tag wearer. Let me invite you to close your eyes for a moment and just quiet your heart and I'm going to stop talking for a second. Here's my prompt to let you think on this. We said a couple of weeks ago, one of the I wills from Romans 14 was this. I will think for myself, not simply of myself. And my challenge to everyone in this room is this. The best person to love your neighbor is you, because they're your neighbors. That means you play an active role in strategically loving on them, being with them, walking with them, serving them, pleasing them in the name of Jesus Christ and to the glory of the Father. God, we aren't interested in three tips for better relationships. God, you fill us with ideas and passions, but we know that our own fleshly ideas will hit a ceiling at tolerance and coexistence. We know our own flesh will be very injured, very hurt, And recoil sometimes for years at a time if we ever try to reach out and someone doesn't respond the way we think that they should. Oh God, put our eyes on Christ, who for the joy that was set before him, the hope that he had, he endured punishment from people. He continued to love like a parent loving a fussy child that won't stop crying. Jesus just served and served and served. God, help us to believe, help us to receive that we have that power to love the way you've called us to. In your name, amen.